All right, our scripture can be found in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 27, the back of the bulletin, or also on the screen. This is Paul as he continues to talk with the Corinthians about what it means to give up uh, your rights uh, that others may grow in Christ. This is what he says. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made use of no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as to make, uh, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. For though I am free of all, from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. And we're going to stop there because we're going to look at this next portion, uh, verse 24 on next week. The word of the Lord. Well, if you listen to communications in our public forum, it's not long before you come across the word rights. Rights is the buzzword in our country. You turn on the TV and you hear people arguing and one of them says, you have no right to say that. Or someone in the paper is uh, asserting, I have my rights. You see a commercial and the attorney looks at you and says, if you have reason to believe your rights 
have been violated, pick up the phone and call the hammer or whoever. We have human rights, civil rights, gay rights, women's rights, animal rights, so many different types of rights. In this way, Virginia Beach is not too far from Corinth because the predominant word in this passage is the word rights. What Paul is saying in this passage is we have many rights as Christians. A new status in God, in Christ, that we are children of God, free from condemnation, no longer having to conform to the world's expectations anymore. But more important than the rights that we now have, we need to forego our rights that others may be free. See, the path for us to walk as Christians is not insisting on our rights, but rather the path of Jesus, laying down our rights that others may find Christ. For to be a slave of Christ is to be a slave of everyone. See, here's the reality, my friends, that people will not come to faith if we don't first surrender our rights. The question, of course, is, Will we do so? Paul touches on two points in this passage that I want to talk about. That others may find Christ, we have to first give up our rights. And second, give all of our heart. So let's look at these points. Number one, to give up our rights. A little background if you weren't here last week or the week before, that there is this discussion that Paul is dealing with. The Corinthians have written the church at Corinth has written to Paul about the question of food offered to idols. Remember that there were many, many different temples in Corinth, and food was, uh, meat was constantly being sacrificed, animal sacrifice, and the leftovers of the meat would end up in the marketplace where they would be purchased. And so pretty much any meat eventually that you were eating in the community was probably offered to an idol initially. And there were these two groups in the church, one that said, look, we, we don't need to worry about that. There's no such thing as an idol anyways. There's only one true God. And yet there were others with a, a weaker conscience who were troubled by this, who had grown up in this idolistic society and were really struggling with, should we eat this meat or not, and possibly be drawn back into that old way of living. Paul's conclusion in the former chapter, was though we are free to eat, we are responsible to one another. That the love that we have for one another should shape our freedom. And true freedom is actually the ability to give up my own. What Paul wants to do in this passage is to extend this principle of self-sacrifice for others, not only from how we are to treat one another in the church, but also to those outside of the church. And so Paul is using his life to illustrate how we do this, the rights he is foregoing for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul begins in this passage talking about who he is. Verse 1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Paul is appealing to the office that he has been given, that he is an apostle, an official Apostle. These were the ones that were sent directly from Jesus Christ. One of those qualifications is to see the Lord, 
which Paul did on the road to Damascus. Paul is an apostle to be treated as the original 12. The words he gives are the words of God. And Paul says, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Meaning Paul was the one responsible for planting the church at Corinth. He was the one that went into the city and built relationships and shared the gospel. And out of his missionary efforts, this church came to fruition. In verse 2, he says, if, if to others out there I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are my seal of apostleship in the Lord. If, if, if anyone should recognize my authority in office, it is you, church at Corinth. And so he goes on in verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? He's not saying the right to eat and drink in general, but rather, do we not have the right to be compensated for our work? Bringing the gospel to you, serving to lead this church. Do we not also have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord? In other words, the other apostles, all of them, were married, including the brothers of Jesus. Remember, Mary and Joseph had other uh, children after Jesus, James and Joseph, uh, Joseph and uh, Jude and uh, Simon. And uh, they would go uh, uh, around helping build the church, and wherever they went, they were uh, taken care of by the church. They were paid for their expenses uh, caring for the church. Is it only Barnabas and I who have to work for a living? In other words, they had outside jobs in order to support themselves. Paul gives three illustrations of how this is the way things work in, in life. Does not the soldier entitled to be paid for his service? Or the one who plants a vineyard, shouldn't he be the first one to be able to benefit from the produce that is created in the vineyard? Or the shepherd or the one who cares for the flock, should he not uh, be entitled to the milk uh, from that flock? And the answer, of course, is yes. That's the way things work. And Paul says the Bible agrees with this principle that we find in life. For does it not say don't muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain? They would hook a, a, an ox to a big a pestle and it would go ahead and uh, around and around inside and also his feet, he'd trample the grain and uh, it would split out in the heads of the grain. Well, you weren't to muzzle it so when it got hungry, it could go ahead and eat. Otherwise, it would grow weary and it would die. This is why we go to school and go to college or learn a trade or start a business for the hope of our hard labors resulting uh, in financial rewards so that we can take care of ourselves and our family. We're the same way, but Paul uh, applies this principle to those who preach the gospel. Verse 14, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And if we have sown spiritual things among you, should we not also reap material things? But notice what Paul says in verse 15a. But I have made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So when Paul came to Corinth and he was 
planting the church. Obviously, he wasn't being compensated. There was no church to compensate him. He was working by day as a tent maker, taking care of himself. And then the church got off the ground, but he also refused to accept compensation. And he's, even now, he's not writing these things to secure provision. You know how sometimes you get a letter from folks, uh, you know, how they're doing, but there's a message kind of behind it. I'm talking about people in full-time uh, missions work that, hey, I, we, need, we need some help here. Paul's not doing that. But he says, if, if others share this rightful claim on you, shouldn't we even more? But he gives the reason in verse 12 why he doesn't do that. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. See, Paul's concern was if he was being compensated by the people, that when he was preaching the gospel, that people would see, oh, this is just a means of Paul for making money. He's manipulating my heartstrings to try to convince me and to be compensated. In other words, there's an ulterior motive. Or Paul might have worried that you coming to faith, that people coming to faith might think there's strings attached to this. If we come to faith, well, then we're going to be Christians. We're going to have to take care of this person and compensate him. And Paul didn't want anything to get in the way of people hearing the gospel. And so he said that we would endure anything rather than putting an obstacle. And so Paul employed himself in a trade. He was a tent maker or a leather worker. So he either uh, made awnings out of leather and other materials or tents or repaired shoes or other leather goods. We know that it had to be something where he could take his tools along with him because uh, he went from place to place. But he was focused on building the church and sharing the gospel. So he wasn't able to work full time. So Paul was poor. In 1 Corinthians 4.11, we hear Paul saying, To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Paul was poor. He wore shoddy clothing. His diet wasn't great. And in fact, it was kind of demeaning to the Corinthians and an embarrassment that their leader looked like this. But the purpose was that he wanted to present no obstacles in coming to faith. Where did he get this concept? Well, it came from the attitude of Jesus Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, became flesh, a human being with all the flaws and weaknesses of humanity, born to a teenage mother in an unwed situation, in a poor family, he came to us. And he was misunderstood. The one who had no place to lay his head as he went from place to place sharing the gospel. Ultimately being crucified in shame. See, the summary of what Paul is saying is that he's not asking the Corinthians to do anything beyond 
what the Savior has done and what he is doing. Paul is saying, look at my life. My life is a summary of the gospel. And that's really what it means to be a Christian. That our lives are to become a summary of the gospel. As people look at us and the way we live and the decisions that we make, they see Christ. The call of the scriptures, like to Paul, is to us. To surrender our rights so that others might grow in faith. For how we live influences our brother for better or for worse. We must examine our rights in terms of other people's spiritual well-being. For when I make decisions, I'm not just making them for myself. I'm sending a message of encouragement or discouragement to those around me in the way I choose to walk out this life. I'm excited on this Father's Day to show you the release of my new book, Carlos, the one and only. It's a fantastic, some of you are like, really? Is it? It's a fantastic and epic biography written by me, telling all about me. It starts off when I was a child, uh, the miraculous birth, right? And uh, going through my entire life. No, it's not a book about me. It's an illustration, people, okay? You know, people put out biographies, right? Carefully cultivated, showing the things that they want to communicate about themselves. But a book is just a bunch of words. It's really our lives that are the book. And our lives are being read all the time by those around us, by those that we don't even know. And our lives are either drawing people to Christ or away. God has called us to live in community with one another and to love each other just as Christ has loved us. So the point is, my friends, how we live affects each other. So how do we lay down our rights? Number one, lay down our right to always be right. When we treat one another, when we commune with one another, do I always have to have my way? Does it always have to be my way? Now, concerning doctrine, concerning the scriptures, obviously we don't step away from that. But there's so much that we hold on to in the name of our rights instead of thinking about other people and what it is that they need. God calls us to live a connected life with one another. Not a disconnected life, but to be in relationship with each other. To have people over from church in our lives. To do life together. And when we see someone missing at church, to call them up, to text them, to say, are you okay? Is everything all right? And if necessary, to drop what I'm doing and to come alongside and carry their burden. God is calling you and me to make decisions with our brother in mind. When I do that post on social media, it's affecting the way everyone lives because they're seeing and responding and learning and either being encouraged and discouraged by what it is that you're saying. When I make that comment, 
When I make that life decision, when I manage my life, it's either drawing people to Christ or away. God is calling us to serve one another, to pick up a towel, to find my place, to wash my brother's feet. Because the path for us to walk is not insisting on our rights, but the path of Jesus is laying down our rights that others may find Christ. Number one, we need to give up our rights. And number two, we need to give all of our heart. Paul is calling us to have that same mentality, not only to one another, but also to those who are outside the church and don't believe in Christ. To lay down our rights for the sake of them hearing about Jesus. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Being a slave to Christ necessitates being a slave to all. See, in becoming free, we become a slave to all. Paul is a servant of Christ as we are servants of Christ. We belong to him. And so notice what Paul says. He doesn't say he's a servant of all. He says he's a servant to all. See, he serves everyone only because he is a servant only of Christ. The truth of the matter, my friends, is you can only love someone when you don't need them. What do I mean by that? What I mean is if you're counting on someone else to define you, to give you identity, to give you value, you can never truly love them because you always need something from them. But Christ gives us the ability to love others freely because we don't need anything from them. And why does Paul become a servant to all? That I might win more of them. And what he's saying, that I might win more of them to embrace the gospel, to be reconciled to God, to become Christians. It is in serving people that we win them. Guilt and shame can never change a person. You hear that? Guilt and shame can never change a person. Only love can change a person. See, some people think if we had the right laws in this country, people would become Christians. No, they would not. If we tell people how wrong they are, what this country needs is to return to the Ten Commandments, right? They will not become Christians from that. How did Jesus win us to Christ? For he is the example that we must follow. He became a servant. And being found in appearance as man, he gave himself, a poor man of poor reputation who sacrificed himself on the cross to show us what it meant to be loved. Paul says in verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Being a Jew and under the law are essentially, he's saying the same things. Well, wasn't Paul already a Jew? The answer is yes. Ethnically, he grew up Jewish, 
and he grew up under the law because to be a Jew is to rely on the law of Moses for righteousness. But Paul is saying, I'm no longer a Jew in that sense because I'm no longer under the law. I'm now under the law of Christ, right? But in order to win Jews, I became as one under the law. Doesn't say I became one again under the law, but I became as one under the law. There's no way that Paul can go back to that of being under the law. But in every way possible, Paul was saying that I will try to identify with Jesus, excuse me, with the Jews, aside from that, going back under the law. See, as far as possible, Paul would deliberately identify himself with those whom he sought to win for the gospel. Now, notice Paul is flexible, but he's not infinitely elastic. Paul never backtracked on the gospel. His accommodation and flexibility has nothing to do with watering down the gospel message or soft-pedaling its ethical demands. Paul never modified the message of Jesus Christ crucified to make it less of a scandal to Jews or less foolish to Greeks. But as far as possible, he would deliberately identify himself with those who he sought to win for the gospel. Let's look at his life and how he did that. For instance, in Acts 16.3, Paul had his traveling companion Timothy circumcised because of the Jews. Now, Timothy was born to a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. And so uh, uh, Judaism is of matrilineal descent. So he was a Jew, but he was never circumcised. And Paul, when he went on his missionary journeys, he always began in the synagogue. And to have an uncircumcised Jew with him would have made any witness to Jews more difficult. So what did he do? He had Timothy circumcised. Now, didn't he say in the book of Galatians that circumcision has no value? And the answer is correct in terms of salvation. But in terms of if it helps to build a bridge with the Jews, the answer is yes, it is of value. And so Timothy did that to build this bridge. We also see in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, Paul says that five times I received from the Jews the 39 lashes. Now we think that those were times when Paul was imprisoned and he was whipped, right? That happened also uh, in, uh, through Roman captivity, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. These were punishments that Paul submitted to voluntarily. What do I mean by that? In the Roman Empire, Jews were given special privileges to settle their disputes, certain disputes in their own courts of blasphemy or, or uh, preaching wrong doctrine and so on. And so if one wanted to stay a member of the Jewish community, they had to submit to its discipline. And so five different times in Jewish communities, the Jewish leaders said, you have spoken wrong and you need to be disciplined. And Paul, instead of saying, forget that, or you're out of the Jewish community, 
right? That's the other option. And Paul, instead of saying, I'm out, said, okay. Five times being whipped, 39 times. He didn't have to. He wasn't under the law. Did it hurt? Absolutely. Why did he do it? To continue to have standing as a Jew in order to preach Christ. And so if you were to take off Paul's shirt, you would see 195 lashes across his back. All because of his desire to win the Jews to Christ. But Paul goes on, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. And Paul understood, I have credibility here with this community, this Jewish community. I was trained under Gamaliel. I have an inroad. But he goes on and speaks about the Gentiles. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Though I'm under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. He's speaking of the Gentiles. Paul, though a Jew, was born in Tarsus, a Greek city. He was a Gentile. He knew their ways. And he wanted to build inroads with them. So his name, he changed it from Saul to Paul. Or used his Greek name, Paul, because he was sent to the Gentiles primarily. And as Paul went into these Gentile communities, he sought to identify with them. He read their books. He quoted their poets. He spoke in a way they understood. In the book of Ephesus, one of the ways in which he shared the gospel was he rented out the lecture hall of Tyrannus. We don't know who Tyrannus is. Some guy who had a lecture hall. And would have daily discussions every day from 11 to 4. You know, through that lunch break, every day he would reason with them, not using the Old Testament, but rather the Socratic method. And he spoke about God's common grace and general revelation in nature and universal human desires and cultural authors that they were all familiar with. He worked among them and lived among them and spoke their language. And he suffered for it, right? And why did he do so? Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Or you could flip it and it's the same thing, that they might share with me in its blessings. Paul wanted these people, Jew and Gentile, to know this Jesus who captured his heart, who found him and saved him. There was a study done by uh, the Barna Group, which is a research uh, uh, company. And uh, this uh, survey, the study that was done, discovered that there is one quality among all others that non-Christians and lapsed Christians look for in a person with whom to talk about faith. Are you wondering what it might be? It would be reasonable to think that perhaps it might be sufficient knowledge to answer their questions, or perhaps some kind of relational tie, someone they know or are related to, or maybe something they have in common with the other person. Age, race, sex would be that which is most desired, but it was none of those things. You ready for it? The number one thing that non-Christians and lapsed Christians look for when they want to talk about faith is a person who listens 
without judgment. A person who listens without judgment. What does that mean? First, it means that you listen. You really listen. Not simply waiting for your turn to speak, but engaging and letting them do the talking until they invite you to respond. Listening without judgment means empathizing with what they have to say. You know, you can empathize without agreeing, just like you can be accepting without being affirming. It also means looking at them through the eyes of God, who sees them as something precious and worthy of the death of his son to try to save. Here's the problem. In that same survey, only a minority of these non-Christians and lapsed Christians, 34%, said the Christians they know personally possess this quality. Why aren't they coming to us to ask questions about faith? Because they don't think that we'll listen without judgment. So what does this look like for us? Sometimes we spend so much time building up walls in the non-Christian community because we have the wrong attitude. It's us and them. And we look at their behavior and we condemn it. But I ask the question, how else would they act? Right? Ain't it great to see sinners acting like sinners? Not Paul. He was here to win people to Christ. So who is the Jew for you? Who do you have credibility with? Maybe it's people in your work, right? You do the same job, you have the same background and expertise. But you say, I'm not like them anymore. I'm not into their stuff. Well, if you want to reach them, you need to get into their stuff. You know, if your work buddies go to a bar after work, well, I don't like bars. Well, they do. So if I want to get in their world, I have to go. Do I need to go and get drunk? Of course not. But you need, if you want to reach them, to go. Have you sent a message to coworkers that I don't approve of your lifestyle? When they speak a certain way, you say, look, I, I don't like your language. Please don't speak that way around me. They're certainly not going to speak and ask you about Jesus Christ after you say that. Do you accept them the way they are? You know, Jesus went to a lot of parties, some hosted by tax collectors and prostitutes. What do you think tax collectors and prostitutes talk about at a party? Jesus, go around and say, look, I don't like the way you talk. Please don't speak that way around me. I guarantee you that he didn't. God has put you where you are for a reason, to love. And to love, you have to build bridges. What about with Gentiles? Maybe people who aren't like you. Who is God calling you to? Let me give you an example. The LGBT community. Actually, it's not the LGBT community anymore, right? It's the LGBTQAA plus community. Now, you can do two things. One, you can make fun of the letters, right? That's ridiculous, right? LGBTQTAA, what? But here's why you shouldn't. Because it matters to them. 
And if it matters to them and you want to love them, it should matter to you too. On your social media account, if you publish something stupid, they're not going to touch you with a 10-foot pole because you're not sensitive and you don't care. And so there's no way I'm going to talk to you about Christ because there's no way you're going to listen to me non-judgmentally. Why do we go to that group of people or any group of people? Because that's who Jesus would go to. But if my attitude is, well, I don't like their sin, it's all wrong. Imagine Jesus Christ, the most holy one of God, who could do no sin, look on no sin, spending just an hour around us. How repulsive our sin is. And yet we see grace and love from Jesus Christ. He got, so we need to understand people's world, to come close. Tell me about your life. Not clean up your act, and then I'll talk to you. But rather, I want to know you as you are right now. But Carlos, I need, I need to tell people to repent of their sin. Let me explain something to you. This is the way the gospel works. This is the way Jesus worked. He began with grace, and he worked outwards to the truth. To be clear, the, the dynamic of the gospel is grace and truth in equal parts. But truth without grace is just judgment. And grace without truth is just licentiousness. But in regard to evangelism, Jesus began with grace and acceptance first. And then once established, having earned the right to be heard, he turned to relevant truth. The woman at the well, right, who lived a promiscuous life. How did he begin? Will you give me a drink? Crossing barriers. The woman caught in adultery. Did he lead with go and sin no more? Or did he look at the crowd and say, he who is without sin, throw the first stone? Is there no one to condemn you? Neither do I. What about Zacchaeus? When you clean up your act, then I'll come to your house. No, I want to be in your house. How do you know you are doing this? How do you know that you're living this kind of life? Number one, you know non-Christians. Number two, non-Christians are comfortable being around you. In fact, they like being around you, and you like being around them. But if your attitude is, I'm here to rescue you, you have the wrong spirit, right? All Christianity is is one beggar saying to another, I know where the bread is. So are you willing to get out of your comfort zone that others may come to Christ? Look around. I know it's Father's Day and people are missing, but there's seats available, right? People need to hear the gospel, but it won't happen if we don't go. For your life is to be a summary of the gospel. I finish with this quote by Charles Thomas Studd. He was a nationally known cricket player in England, famous, rich, and gave it all to go evangelize in Africa, India, and China. He said, some wish to live within the sound of a church or a chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. The path for us to walk is not insisting on our rights, but 
But the path of Jesus, laying down our rights, that others may find Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you came in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of our rejection of you, you came and you befriended us and you loved us and you became as one of us that we might become like you. God, give us a heart for people all around us, people we have an in with, people who are not like us at all. Help us to see with your eyes and to love. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.